guy to be quiet. We can get everybody to be quiet. They want to send a message, don't they? Absolutely. They want to make you an example, don't they? Yes. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand before me in the breach before the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. As you can see behind me, there are three of my daughters. The fourth is in front of me, sitting in the stroller. When the day he arrives, we're gonna suspend him. What is a suspendable? In weaponized fashion, the FBI allowed me to accept orders to a new position halfway across the country. Then, on my first day on the new assignment, they suspended me, rendering my family homeless. They suspended you, they took your pay, they don't let you get health insurance, they made life miserable for you. It is the man or woman who will stand in the breach. It is the man or woman who will do what is right, no matter what. It is the man or woman who will bear any burden and pay any cost for the truth. The FBI will crush you. This government will crush you and your family if you try to expose the truth about things that they are doing that are wrong. We are all examples of that. The government may breathe down your throat. We're not gonna let his family get their belongings. We're not gonna let him get his clothes for his kids, his winter coats for his children. We're gonna send a message. And they did. They may chop off your head, but you will do what is right no matter what. For me, it's for them. They are living in a world that is far worse than the one I grew up in. What does it mean to you to be a suspendable? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, verse 6. As much as I would like to talk about the government being upon his shoulder, I share that verse merely because it's Christmas. So Merry Christmas, everybody. And I want to just put that out there because it's a strong verse. It's one many of us have probably heard and known. Uh, but for me, it, it has extra special meaning because of the mention of government being upon his shoulder. But we're going to divert a little bit today away from that common thread, that common topic. And we're going to focus more on Christmas. And specifically, we're going to focus on a Christmas movie. It's a Wonderful Life. As you may have noticed from my play of words on the title, it's a suspendable life. We're going to take a little bit of a look at George Bailey and what he endured in the movie It's a Wonderful Life and why he was a suspendable as well. Some of you know that uh, I was in North Dakota recently and while I was there, let's see if we can get this to focus a little bit. I picked up this mug. That's a picture of George Bailey and I got this. This is done by someone who does pottery up there and they have a little bit, um, a small shop at a brewery that we visited on our last day and i just found it kind of poignant because our first night there um before the speech that i gave uh i was kind of i don't know amped up a little bit i guess and couldn't really sleep so i thought all right i'll stay up a little bit and kind of go over my speech and i turned on it's a wonderful life and i ended up staying up all night uh, watching the whole thing and stayed up way too late doing that uh, but it it's long been my favorite Christmas movie. And so, I don't know, I just kind of took these things as tiny signs 
that uh, maybe I should do a little bit more of a deep dive into it. And then I would say two, maybe three, four days ago, I was at a grocery store here and I saw on one of the one of the checkout aisles, there was some magazine and it had It's a Wonderful Life on it and said like number one Christmas Christmas movie of all time. And I thought, OK, maybe I will do a little a little something on, on It's a Suspendable Life and and what that is and means and why this movie really stood out this last time I watched it. So if you don't know what It's a Wonderful Life is, uh, it's a Christmas movie that really at its core, it's about suicide. If you really think about it, uh, George Bailey, the main character played by Jimmy Stewart, ends up staying in his small hometown of Bedford Falls. And it's a place he wanted to escape most of his life. And as fate would have it, or in, in my eyes, I guess, as divine providence would have it, he, he was never allowed to leave. And his his duty was was there to Bedford Falls and the people of Bedford Falls. And as we see later in the movie, uh, there's a time where George is given the gift of not being born. or And so Bedford Falls becomes Pottersville. And it's just an interesting, I guess, look at what one man's life meant to so many people in a town. And I think, especially at this time of year, it's it's something worth diving into a little bit more. But um, I also found it interesting that Jimmy Stewart, who played uh, George Bailey himself, was a World War II veteran. And he also struggled with PTSD. So before World War II, he was, he was already in Hollywood and a somewhat accomplished actor. And then World War II kicks off, and he's 30, 33 years old when he ends up joining the Army Air Corps. He flew 24 combat missions in Europe and eventually was grounded and not permitted to fly because he was what they called back then flak happy. It's what we would call today just PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. I know a lot of people like to drop the D at the end and just call it post-traumatic stress uh, because you know it's not necessarily a disorder that 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 word has a negative connotation so a lot of people drop that d uh he won the or a one he was awarded the distinguished flying cross for his efforts in the war and before he ever left america and joined the military he was asked you know why he would do such a thing and he is quoted as saying this country's conscience is bigger than all the studios in hollywood put together which I just find very interesting when you contrast that to what people in Hollywood might say today. So that's a little bit of the background on the movie. And this is going to be heavy with uh, clips from the movie. Hopefully none of them will get interrupted with commercials, but if they do, I guess we'll bear through it. So let's just start right in the beginning and Go with the intro scene for It's a Wonderful Life. If I can figure this out. I was making so much money with DoorDash. I wanted to earn money in my free time, but I didn't want to go out and get a boring nine to five. That's. I owe everything to George Bailey. Help him, dear father. 
Joseph, Jesus, and Mary, help my friend, Mr. Bailey. Help my son, George, tonight. He never thinks about himself, God. That's why he's in trouble. George is a good guy. Give him a break, God. I love him, dear Lord. Watch over him tonight. Please, God, something's the matter with Daddy. Please bring Daddy back. Hello, Joseph. Trouble? Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey? Yes, tonight's his crucial night, you're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. Whose turn is it? That's why I came to see you, sir. It's a clockmaker's turn again. Oh, Clarence hasn't got his wings yet, has he? We've passed him up right along. Because, you know, sir, he's got the IQ of a rabbit. Yes, but he's got the faith of a child. Simple. Joseph, send for Clarence. You sent for me, sir? Yes, Clarence. A man down on Earth needs our help. Splendid. Is he sick? No, worse. He's discouraged. At exactly 10.45 p.m. Earth time, that man will be thinking seriously of throwing away God's greatest gift. Oh, dear, dear, his life. Then I've only an hour to dress. What are they wearing now? You will spend that hour getting acquainted with George Bailey. Sir, if I should accomplish this mission, I mean, uh, might I perhaps win my wings? I've been waiting for over 200 years now, sir, and people are beginning to talk. What's that book you've got there? And so here in this first scene where introduced to a little bit of George's plight as it were that he is going to make you know be on the brink of making a a rash decision on whether he wants to live or not and we're also introduced to Clarence who is uh one of the key characters or or at least becomes one of the key characters in the movie and he is as we learn later sent down to earth and you know we won't get into the whole biblical aspects of of uh of angelic beings but um in this hollywood depiction clarence is sent as as george's guardian angel to hopefully help him uh off the ledge as it were uh with this decision that he's about to make and then after that clip uh clarence is shown a little bit of george's past and one of the one of the scenes that comes next is when George and some of his friends and his little brother Harry are sledding and Harry ends up you know going through some ice and into some icy cold water and George jumps in to save him but we learn that George gets sick from that and gets an infection in his ear and ends up going deaf in that ear and then one of the next scenes we see is uh, this this next one where George is working at a local um, pharmacy, and we'll we'll run this clip and and see what we learn next. Yes, sir. You want to pay to be a canary? No, sir.
Mr. Gower, do you want something? Anything? No. Anything I can do back here? No. I'll get them, sir. Take, take those caps and go with Mrs. Blaine. Get away from them. Yes, sir. gonna pause this one because I think it's important to note a little bit of what George young George <clears throat> is doing and what he saw and an early idea of why he is also a suspendable so <clears throat> I mentioned when Harry fell through the ice and George saved him this is you know not not all the kids jumped into action it was George leading the way and jumping into that cold water, probably something he didn't really want to do, but something he saw that was needed and must be done. And so he did it. And then again, likewise here, <clears throat> Mr. Gower, the, the pharmacist, you can, you can tell that he's something's going on with him and it, it, it becomes clear to George that he's been drinking. And then he sees the telegram that Mr. Gower's son had passed away. And Mr. Gower's fulfilling an order for some people there in town who are suffering from diphtheria. And George is kind of piecing the the, the puzzle together and, and trying to figure out what's going on, but notices that the medicine, quote unquote, medicine that the pharmacist is putting in is actually poison. And so he's, as a kid, he's like, ah, oh, you know, this is a, my boss. He's the authority figure, but he's, he's a, out of his mind right now with grief and, and been drinking and uh, something, something bad, something's bad going to happen here. And, Oh, what do I do? What do I do? And then he sees that sign and says, you know, dad knows best. So he runs to the building and loan that his father operates with his uncle. And um, because he's, you know, trying to go get some advice from dad, like, Hey, well, what, you know, what do I do now? And we will take it from there to see what happens. There, Captain Cook. Where are you heading? Gotta see Papa, Billy. Some other time, George. It's important. There's a squall in there. It's shaping up into a storm. Uncle Billy, telephone. Who is it? Bank examiner. Bank examiner. Should have called him yesterday. Switch it inside. I'm not crying, Mr. Potter. Well, you're begging. That's a whole lot of words. Well, all I'm asking for is 30 days more. Uh, just a minute, son. Just 30 short days. I'll dig up that 5,000 somehow. Shut me up. Shut me up. Huh? Did you minute. put any real pressure on these people of yours to pay those mortgages? Time's up bad, Mr. Potter. A lot of these people are out of work. But foreclosed. I can't do that. These families have children. Uh, they're not my children. But they're somebody's children, Mr. Potter. 
Are you running a business or a charity war? Well, all right. Not but... with my money. Mr. Potter, what makes you such a hard-skulled character? You have no family, no children. You can't begin to spend all the money you've got. Oh, I suppose I should give it to miserable failures like you and that idiot brother of yours to spend for me. He's not a failure. You George, can't say George. that about my father. George, George, You're George. not. You're the biggest man in town. Run along. Bigger than him. Run along. Bigger than everybody. Don't let him say that about you, Pop. All right, son, all right, thanks. I'll talk to you tonight. Uh, conflicted and runs into another aspect of, of how and why he's a suspendable. So he's trying to talk to his dad about this ongoing problem with Mr. Gower and the poison, but then runs into the tyrant of Bedford Falls, Mr. Potter, and Mr. Potter, as we learn throughout the movie, is his one of his primary goals goals is really to see the Baileys, you know, run out of business. So they've got a small building alone. Mr. Potter basically is the money of the town and runs the town. We even learn later that uh, a congressman calls and Mr. Potter says, Oh, he can wait. So even a congressman has to wait for Mr. Pot Potter. He's a powerful guy. And everybody comes to him uh when when they need money and he, he knows that he's got a stranglehold on the town, but uh, some of the imagery and symbolism is, is unique in that we see that he's confined to this wheelchair and he's carted around by his aide. And it's pretty clear that Mr. Potter is a bitter old man and just wants what he doesn't have. And that's pretty common, I would say of, of tyranny, a tyrant that's that's what they one of their you know major mo's is to grasp what they don't have they want to suck from you and everybody else the things that aren't in their power and i think that's pretty clear of mr potter uh but now george is kind of left in a predicament because he wasn't able to talk to his dad because his dad was in the middle of this business meeting George did confront the tyrant here, though, and said, you can't talk to my dad that way. And for a young child to do, uh, that's that's unique. That's pretty rare. Uh, but it's another aspect of George's character and his uh, clear discernment of right and wrong and how he's going to do the right thing regardless, uh, even if that means getting into a little bit of trouble with mom and dad later that evening or if Mr. Potter, you know, kind of puts him on you know, has a target on his back the rest of his life, which he will, he does. But um, now we'll see what happens with uh, the, the ongoing dilemma with, with Mr. Gower. What? Why, that medicine should have been there an hour ago. It'll be over in five minutes for the What is Miss Blaine for the capsules? I Bill. Did you hear what I said? Yes, sir. I... What kind of tricks did you play anyway? What way did you ride into the limit and ride away? Don't you know that boy's very sick? Thank you, Rudy. My sword here. You lazy loafer. Just a gal. Well, I accidentally closed out the clip there, but it's probably... Um, good enough, far enough for what, what we need. And um, what we see there is 
George returning back to the to the pharmacy. Mr. Gower is clearly a bit more intoxicated than he was when we last saw him. He's getting off the phone with presumably the customer that that George was supposed to go and uh, give them the medicine for. And George is trying to explain what happened and and why he didn't deliver the medicine. And Mr. Gower initially isn't really having it, but uh, George persists and it basically says like, Hey, you, you know, you don't, you didn't know what you were doing. Like that was poison in there. And because of my mishap, I, I cut it. But um, we see shortly thereafter, Mr. Gower realizes what he had done. And then he ends up giving uh, George a hug and apologizing to him. And throughout the movie or later, as we go through George's life, we, we see that Mr. Gower and George had a, a pretty strong bond, even though Mr. Gower was, was merciless, mercilessly beating him, even in his already damaged ear. Um, we also learned that George never tells a soul about what almost happened there with Mr. Gower uh, providing poison instead of actual medicine uh, to his, his um, patients. Uh, also in that clip, we see a little girl, and earlier in one of the clips I played, that girl is seen where George gives her some ice cream. That's Mary. And she's one of the main characters as well, as we'll see going forward. And so we're going to jump forward a little bit into George's adulthood. And uh, he's, he's having dinner with his dad the night of his younger brother, Harry's graduation from high school. And George has lingered in town a few years longer than he wanted. But at this point in the story, we, we see that George is still, you know, pretty happy-go-lucky and has all these grand ideas and plans uh, for what he's going to do with his life and what he wants to do. And so let's see what him and his dad have to say to each other at dinner time. Father, hope you have a good trip, George. Uncle Billy and I are going to miss you. Miss you too, Carl. Larry, you're tired. Oh, I had another tussle with Potter today. Oh. I thought when they put him on the board of directors, he'd ease up on us a little bit. Oh, what's eating that old money-grubbing buzzard anyway? Oh, he's a sick man, frustrated, sick in his mind, sick in his soul, if he has one. He hates everybody that has anything that he can't have. Hates us mostly, I guess. Yeah, gangway, gangway. So long, Pop. So long. Oh, you got a match? Very funny, very funny. Put those things in the car and I'll get your time studs ready for you. Now hurry up. Okay, Mom. Now you coming later? Drop one of them. You coming later, George? What do you mean? I'd be bored to death? Wouldn't want a better death. Lots of pretty girls. We're going to use that new floor tonight, too. Oh, hope it works. No gin tonight, son. Oh, Pop, just a little? No, sir, not one drop. Uh... Boys and girls and music. Why do they need gin? Well, did I act like that when I graduated from high school? Yeah, pretty much. You know, George, I wish we could send Harry to college with you. Your mother and I talked it over half the night. Mm. We have that all figured out. You see, Harry will take my job in the building alone, work there for four years, and then he'll go. Mm. Pretty young for that job. Well, no younger than I was. Well, you were born older, George. How's that? I say you were born older. I suppose you've decided what you want to do when you get out of college. Oh, well, you know what I've always talked about, build things, design new buildings, plan modern cities, all that stuff I've been talking about. Still after that first million before you're 30, huh? No, I'll sell half that in cash. Of course, it's just a hope, but uh, you wouldn't consider coming back to the building alone, would you? Well, I... I... 
Well, Annie, why, why don't you draw up a chair? Then you'd be more comfortable and you could hear everything that's going on. I would if I thought I'd hear anything worth listening to. You would. I know it's soon to talk about it. No, not Pop. I, I couldn't. I, uh, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. The, no, I'm, I'm sorry, Pop. I didn't mean that. I, but I, it, it's this business of nickels and dimes and spending all your life trying to figure out how to save three cents and like the pipe. I go crazy. I, I want to do something big and something important. You know, George, I feel that in a small way we are doing something important. It's satisfying a fundamental urge. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof and walls and fireplace. And we're helping him get those things in our shabby little office. I know, Pop. I, I know that. I, I, I wish I felt that uh, I, I've been hoarding pennies like a miser here in order to... Most of my friends have already finished college. I, I just feel like if I didn't get away, I'd bust. Yes, yes. You're right, son. You see what I mean, don't you, Pop? This town is no place for any man unless he's willing to crawl to Potter. Now, you've got talent, son. I've seen it. You get yourself an education and get out of here. Pop, you want a shock? I think you're a great guy. Why, did you hear that, Annie? I heard it's about time one of you lunkheads said it. <laughs> I think is one of the more profound clips, at least that I pulled. There's a lot here from really, really what it boils down to, I think, is is the wisdom that we see from George's dad. And you see that early on. It's a, it's a little more a little more playful and some banter, especially with uh, Harry with the, the pie on his head and one in each hand and says, Oh pop, you know, can I just have a little bit of gin or, or whatever he says? And his dad's like, Nope, not even one drop. And, and so it, it is a little playful, but as it gets a little more serious, we see that George clearly doesn't want to stay in Bedford falls, but that he feels conflicted or at least he sees that his dad wants him to stay and take over the business but that's not his heart's desire uh, but it's it's there's a some conflict there because you can see the pain on george's face and hear it in his voice that he doesn't want to disappoint his dad but he's got his own dreams and his own goals and then you see his dad kind of resigned to that like okay you're right you know you got to do what you got to do and if you 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 can't stay here unless you're willing to snivel to Potter. And it was something George's dad refused to do his whole life. It's probably a little bit uh, what wore him down. You know, George mentions kind of his state, like, hey, you know, you don't look, you don't look so good, dad. And this ends up becoming a very consequential night for the Bailey family because, uh, you know, I mentioned Harry is graduating from high school. He's got the party. And we're, we're here at the dinner, and even though George and Harry were kind of bantering back and forth themselves, George does end up going to the party, and we are reintroduced to an older Mary. And George and Mary kind of connect at the high school, and they dance, and they end up falling into a pool. And then they end up, you know, George ends up walking her home, which takes us to our next clip. And... 
Here we go. Next day and next year and a year after that, I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here and go to college and see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers a hundred stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. Were you going to throw a rock? Hey, that's pretty good. What'd you wish, Mary? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? tonight can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Dance by the light of the moon. What'd you wish when you threw that rock? Oh, no. Come on, no. tell me. If I told you, it might not come true. What is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. I'll take it. Then what? Well, then you could swallow it. And it all dissolves, see? And the moonbeams that shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. Am I talking too much? Yes! Why don't you kiss her instead of talking at her death? How's that? Why don't you kiss her instead of talking at her death? Want me to kiss her, huh? Oh, use is wasted on the wrong people. Hey. And so there we see a little bit of uh, wit, I guess, from from one of the <laughs> one of the neighbors there in town. But uh, we also see that Mary makes a wish when she throws that rock through the window. We don't know. We don't ever know what that wish is. But we can probably probably surmise that the wish is that George stays in town and marries her because she's had a crush on him since they were little kids. In that one of those earlier clips, the one where she got the ice cream at the pharmacy, um, I didn't show it, but she whispers into his hurt ear something like, I'll love you forever, George Bailey, or something like that. And so then fast forward a little bit, and George is still in town. Mary's grown up as well, and they kind of start to kindle things here. But George, being the young, blind man that some of us can be sometimes, he is just thinking, ah, this is a fun, a fun night, but you know, I've got bigger dreams and bigger goals. And, you know, then Mary throws her rock and maybe in some ways that's even the linchpin of, of what ends up happening to all of them as we go forward. But we also see George very happy here and uh, energetic about life and excited for the future and to see what his life will be. And he has, again, all these ambitions and dreams and goals uh, to head towards what isn't shown in that clip is that eventually, eventually somebody comes and finds George and says, Hey, your dad had a stroke. You got to come home right away. And he kind of ends up abandoning Mary uh, to get home on her own and, and goes home to find uh, that his dad has, has passed away. So in the previous clip, you know, him and his dad were having dinner. That's the last dinner they'd have together. And then unbeknownst to George and Harry, even too, um, they go off to have a night of fun and then 
eventually come home to find dad has passed. And so shortly after dad passed away, um, there's this talk of what to do with the building alone and the board members and, and George has kind of an impassioned speech there, which will take us to our next clip. What is that, Geddes? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... A minute, just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Potter. A minute. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny-ante building alone, I'll never know. But... Neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Probably... Here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they... What'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait? Wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they... Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I, you're the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. Well, how about that? Without crawling to Potter. And I think all of us can, can really, you know, hearken to that sentiment. We've seen it in our lives one way or another. The tyrant in our life wants every little drop that they can get. And George calls that out and says, I know what you want. I know exactly what you're talking about. You want the things you can't have. And my dad wouldn't let you have it. And I hope the board doesn't let you have it. And this is a turning point for George because we see, this is where we start to see his happy-go-lucky attitude start to fade. And there are other clips. I mean, I hope all of you have seen the movie. If, if you haven't, there's lots of spoilers here. So spoiler alert, I guess, a little bit too late. But um, if if you haven't seen the whole whole thing in a while, uh, especially it being Christmas, I, I hope you go back and watch the whole thing because I'm just pulling a couple tidbits here and there. There's, there's a lot more to the story that builds even before this point. But um, th this is where we start to see George lose kind of that happiness and that'll be a, another common thread going forward where he's not as happy as he was until this point and i bet a lot of us can relate to that because we've had someone close to us die or or some you know egregious thing in our life that's happened where we do just become a different person you know this is this is something heidi and i have talked about quite a bit in the last 
15, 18 months or so. And I say it this way, we're, we're different people now. Like we're not who we were. We're not who we used to be and we'll never be the same again. And in a lot of ways, like that's okay. I mean, that's part of life and that's part of trials and tribulations that come our way. And, you know, I think of, of James chapter one, it talks about trials and tribulation a lot and, and, you know, having a steadfast faith and what that will yield. But that being said, I still think you end up being different people. And I think this is, this is a different, this is George becoming a different person. You know, he's still George Bailey, but the events now that have happened in his life have caused him to be a different version of George Bailey than what he probably thought he was going to be. And so he confronts the tyrant again. I, I think back to one of the first clips we played and it's when he is a child and he confronts the tyrant uh, in, in defense of his dad. And now here, when his dad is dead, he confronts the tyrant again in defense of his dad. And long story short, the board votes to keep the building and loan intact. And this only kind of perpetuates George's dilemma. He ends up staying and taking over the building and loan and working with his uncle, Billy. He's the guy who we saw earlier. He had the, the, the rope or yarn tied around his fingers to help him remember while it doesn't actually help him remember very often. And this is another aspect of life is you, you can't really control very much. And as George eventually learns, he can't control uh, what happens with Billy and, and the business partner that he is. And it, it doesn't happen till a little bit later, but Billy is at the bank, which is owned by Potter. And he's trying to deposit like $8,000, which remember at the time, you know, that's, Wow, well, actually, I would say, especially for being indefinitely suspended without pay forever, $8,000 is a lot of money. But back then, it was even more. And so Billy's at the bank to try to deposit this, and he ends up getting into like a mini verbal tussle with Potter because Harry is coming home from the war, having won, I think, the Medal of Honor, um, in the, as the story goes. But either way, he's a war hero, and he's on like the front page of the newspaper, and haphazardly, Billy puts the eight grand that's in an envelope in the newspaper and hands it to Potter. Of course, Potter, because he's a tyrant and evil and wicked, he doesn't do the right thing. He just takes the money because why not? Because it's more for him and that's all tyrants ever care about. And eventually that means the building alone is going to go bankrupt. But um, I think I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because eventually... Uh, or in the interim, I guess, before that happens, the building and loan is slowly making strides. And and Mary and George, they get married. They start having kids. And George has put everything aside. Everything he wanted, he has put on the back burner. And he's in Bedford Falls. And he's in the building and loan. All the things he didn't want. But he sacrificed what he wanted for what was best. And eventually Potter realizes like, man, this building and loan is really just a thorn in my side. And that will take us here to our next clip from the film. Well, what's your point, Mr. Potter? My point? My point is I want to hire you. Hire me? Yeah, I want you to manage my affairs, run my properties. George, I'll start you out at $20,000 a year. 
I've seen side the lot. Oh, of course, we get another ad, but I'm going to try to skip it here. Sorry about that. $20,000 a year. You wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town, buying your wife a lot of fine clothes, a couple of business trips to New York a year, maybe once in a while Europe. You wouldn't mind that, would you, Jones? Would I? You're not talking to somebody else around here, are you? You know, th this is me. You remember me? George Bailey. George Bailey. <laughs> George Bailey, whose ship has just come in. Provided he has enough brains to climb aboard. Confounded man, are you afraid of success? I'm offering you a three years contract at $20,000 a year starting today. Is it a deal or isn't it? Well, Mr. Plunder, I, I, I know I ought to jump at the chance, but I, I just, uh, I, I wonder if it would be possible for you to give me 24 hours to think it over. Sure, sure, sure. You go on home and talk about it to your wife. I'd like to do that. Yeah, and in the meantime, I'll draw up the papers. All right, sir. Okay, George. Okay, Mr. Potter. No, 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 wait a minute here. Wait a minute. I don't need 24 hours. I, I don't have to talk to anybody. I know right now, and the answer's no, no! Doggone it! You sit around here and you spin your little webs and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. In the, in the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you were nothing but a scurvy little spider. You... And that goes for you, too. When you touch the hand of the devil, the, the devil lets you know what you're touching. And I think that's what happened there in that clip. At first, George was enticed by the things of the world, the $20,000 salary per year, what that meant personally for him and his family or what it could have meant. And even though it would have been good for him and his family, he still asked, well, what about the business and loan? And Potter, the tyrant, the devil says, don't, what do you care about that? That hasn't, you know, get over it, essentially. And then eventually near the end, George almost is going to bite. Says, no, nah, let me go talk about it with my wife. He shakes his hand and he then he knew right then, right there, I almost got duped. I almost got played for the fool by the devil. Good intuition on George's behalf. I mean, he's been dealing with this guy his whole life, this evil tyrant who's running the town. And he lets him have it again. I mean, this is at least the third time that George has confronted him verbally. You know, the first time when he was a kid and then after his dad died and now here. And it's also a good depiction of the common thread with the tyrant. They come with the carrot first. Here's the carrot. A paycheck. A, a future. A new beginning. Whatever it might be. Just comply. Just comply with what I want. Just do as I say. Don't ask any questions and everything's going to be all right. But George saw through that lie and everything was not going to be all right.
and he knew it. And he said, this is just another ploy, another way for you to take over this town, and I'm not going to have it. I'm not going to allow it. And no, my answer is no, and see ya. And I like I like how he threw in the jab at uh, Potter's assistant who pushes him around in his wheelchair. He said, yeah, that goes for you too. But as I mentioned before I played that clip, things take a turn for George. Uh, not all of it in his control. Actually, much of it not in his control because his business partner, his uncle, loses that eight grand and basically forfeits it over to Potter. And Potter then really, he's he steals it and uh then the building and loan is set to you know that what are you going to do you're you're out eight grand and so george doesn't really know what to do and now it's christmas time and um he he kind of scrambles and we start to see some of the despair and I, i know i mentioned in the beginning how jimmy stewart was struggling with ptsd himself and i think in some of these clips coming up we really see him start to manifest and deal with some of that post-traumatic stress, you know, on the silver screen. Like he, he copes uh, through his acting with things that he was truly dealing with. And this next clip, it's, it's one of the shorter ones, but I think it's a really good example of, of what I'm saying. Show me the way, oh God. I mean, if that isn't the prayer of every man, and George even mentions it, hey, I'm not a praying man, but Lord, if you're up there, show me, because I'm struggling down here. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to do it. I I don't see a way through. I don't see a way through this current predicament, this current trial. I need you. But... George doesn't get an answer in the short term, as is common. I mean, I, I think God doesn't really speak to us presently and oftentimes in that way where it's like, oh, here's your answer. I think oftentimes it's when we, when we look back and we say, ah, this is how God was answering my prayer, or this is what he was doing or how he was working or what he was providing at that time, and I just didn't see it. I know for me that that is often uh, what happens is when I look back and I say, ah, oh, that's what he was trying to show me. That's what he was trying to do. And honestly, I think we often only scratch the surface because the algorithm that God is running for even just our lives, not to mention all the lives of everybody around us, but just for our, our own sakes is uh, pretty intense. And even all the best mathematicians in the world couldn't figure it out. But 
here we have George at the bar, martinis. He's praying, doesn't know what to do. This is, uh, you, you see him reach into his coat jacket and that's his insurance policy where I didn't play the clip, but, uh, Mr. Potter tells him he's cause eventually if George does, he goes back to Potter sniveling and say, Hey, I don't know what happened. I lost this money and sort of gloating because he knows George doesn't know, but Potter gloats over him and says, Oh, so here you come to me now. And he says, you're worth more dead, worth more dead than alive. And so that's what George is pulling out there at the bar. And this is when he decides like, yeah, I guess Potter was right. And he heads to a bridge uh, to, to jump and, and to end his life. And he thinks that that is the best way. And so here we have someone his whole life, he has been sacrificing the things he wanted, the things he thought were best for his life, the way he thought and wanted his life to go. He's been giving it all up for everybody else, you know, so Harry could go to college. Uh, so his dad, you know, his dad, I mean, some of it did seem out of his control because his dad dies and then he's like, well, what other choice do I have? You know, and that's, isn't that even often the way things go in our lives? We, we, we seem to come up with a plan and have a plan. Uh, but that plan often is very different too. When we look back, on our on our days so george heads to this bridge it's snowy he ends up crashing his car too and then walks and he's gonna jump but then we're reintroduced to the angel clarence who we met very early in that first scene but now he's manifested as a human and he jumps in before george does and george sees him and being a typical suspendable he jumps into action and so george jumps in then and uh, rescues Clarence from this freezing cold water, which takes us to the next clip where we hear Clarence more for the first time uh, talk. I didn't have time to get some stylish underwear. Wife gave me this on my last birthday. <laughs> I passed away in it. Oh, Tom Sawyer's drying out, too. You should read the new book Mark Twain's writing now. How did you happen to fall in? I didn't fall in. I jumped in to save George. You what? To save me? Well, I did, didn't I? You didn't go through with it, did you? Go through with what? Suicide. Oh, it's against the law to commit suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Where do you come from? Heaven? I had to act quickly. That's why I jumped in. I knew if I were drowning, you'd try to save me. You see, you did. And that's how I saved you. Uh, uh, very funny. Your lip's bleeding, George. Yeah. I got a bust in the jaw in answer to a prayer a little bit ago. Oh, no, 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 George. I'm the answer to your prayer. That's why I was sent down here. How'd you know my name? Oh, I know all about you. I've watched you grow up from a little boy. What are you, a mind reader or something? <laughs> well, who are you then? Clarence Oddbody, AS2. Oddbody? AS2, what, what, what's that AS2? Angel, second class. <laughs>
Cheerio, my good man. you say just a minute ago? Why do you want to save me? That's what I was sent down for. I'm your guardian angel. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Ridiculous of you to think of killing yourself for money. Eight thousand dollars. Yeah, now, th just things like that. Now, how do you know that? I told you I'm your guardian angel. I know everything about you. Well, you look about like the kind of an angel I'd get. Sort of a fallen angel, aren't you? What happened to your wings? I haven't worn my wings yet. That's why I'm an angel second class. I think that's probably enough of that one. But uh, I find it funny how George tries to blame the drinks. We, you know, the the attendant of, you know, where whatever it is near the the water that they jumped in. He, you know, he clearly is like wigged out and and ends up fleeing. But George is like, oh, wonder what Martini put in them drinks. And not really taken aback by it other than to just be like, oh, man, just another problem. But um, it does question a little bit uh, Clarence's motives and why he's there. And Clarence is pretty straightforward with him about why he's there and what he's doing. And this is where the movie really kind of turns and because George, um, he... He basically says, I I don't want to live. I didn't want to live, you know, and he even kind of questions Clarence, like, what do you mean, save me? And Clarence says, well, you're going to kill yourself, weren't you? And and so George gets a, a, a chance to look at his life of what it would, or not his life, of what life would look like if George never existed. And uh, this is, at least in my opinion, where the movie really starts to extract a lot of its meaning where, I mean, no, you don't ever get the chance to, to look at what life would be like, whether you didn't exist, but our, the next clip I'm going to show it, it really hits home. Uh, for me, this is one of the ones that always has, it's always stood out in my mind and it's one I've always contemplated and wondered about, like, do our lives touch so many other lives or, how how do they you know and i think it gets pretty pretty well summed up here are you sure this is bailey park no i'm not sure of anything anymore all i know is this should be bailey park but where are the houses you went here to build them your brother harry bailey broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Clarence. Yes, George? Where's Mary? 
Oh, well, I, I, I can't... Uh... I don't know how you know these things, but tell me, where is she? I'm if you not... know where she is, tell me where my wife is. I'm not supposed to tell. Please, Clarence, tell me where she is. You're not gonna like it, George. Where is she? She's an old maid. She never married. Where is Mary? Where is she? She's... Where is she? She's just about to close up the library! And so here we see uh, George kind of starting to, to crack a little bit more, at least definitely not that happy-go-lucky George we saw for the first half of the movie. And now he's seeing what life would be without him. He learns that his brother's dead. He didn't live. All the men on the transport, they didn't live. No Medal of Honor, no life, and... Then he asks about Mary, his wife, and learns she never married. She just works at the library. He runs off to seek her out. And he's really starting to see uh, how wonderful his life was. And I think, honestly, we're just going to roll right into the next one. Because it, it just, these, these shorter clips, I think, really kind of hammer. Well, who are you? What I the point of the you, movie George, is. I'm your guardian angel. Yeah, yeah, I know. You told me that. What else are you? What are you? You a hypnotist? No, of course not. Well, then why am I seeing all these strange things? Don't you understand, George? It's because you were not born. Well, if I wasn't born, who am I? You're nobody. You have no identity. Oh, what do you mean, no identity? My name's George Bailey. There is no George Bailey. You have no papers, no cards, no driver's license, no 4F card, no insurance policy. They're not there either. What? Zuzu's petals. You've been given a great gift, George. A chance to see what the world would be like without you. Now, wait a minute here. Wait a minute here. Oh, this is some sort of a funny dream I'm having. So long, Mr. I'm going home. Home? What home? Now, shut up. Cut it out. You, you, you're, you, you're crazy. That's what I think. You're, you're screwy. You're driving me crazy, too. I'm seeing things here. I'm going home and see my wife and family. You understand that? And I'm going home alone. So here we have George losing it a bit more. Really, really starting to realize, like, oh, man, my life was wonderful. And he didn't understand the connections he made, the effect he had. And... This goes back to what I was talking about, the algorithm that God is running. We just, it's so incomprehensible to us to understand what is at play, what our lives mean, what we do in our lives, the people we encounter, the people we interact with, the people we touch. And and sometimes that's it's not all good. We've all done things that, that are bad too, and we've impacted people in a negative way. Uh, but here in this clip, we see... George starting to realize how different things are just without him because of the rippling effects that one life can have. And we're coming into the end here, but this, this last clip is a little bit longer. So I'll just, I'll, I'll just pause and, and comment as we go. But 
uh, George eventually comes to the conclusion that he really was better off with a life, regardless of what happened, regardless of the consequences that, that might happen to him, uh, that it truly was wonderful. And he comes to that realization as we'll start to see here at the end of the film. Clarence, get me back. Get me back. I don't care what happens to me. Get me back to my wife and kids. Help me, Clarence, please. Please. I want to live again. I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. <laughs> Hey, George! George! You all right? Hey, what's the matter? Now get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. Get out of here. What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? So here, George gets his wish granted, and we see the change where he's got the bloody lip again, and the police officer uh, recognizes him and, and knows who he is. There was a clip earlier in the movie, I didn't play it, where he encounters this police officer and he doesn't know, doesn't know who he is. And the guy tries to take him into custody. And it's, you know, it's again, like I said, I'm just playing little snippets here. It's worth going to revisit, especially it being Christmas and all, but, um, George, he, he's realizing, Oh, okay. He, this guy knows who, who I am. George. Bert, do you know me? Know you? <laughs> you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... <laughs> my mouth's bleeding, Bert! Just as an aside, <laughs> with my law enforcement background, I find this part kind of comical because <laughs> the Bert, the cop, he says, yeah, I saw your car back there crashed into a tree. Uh, I just trying to find you make sure make sure all right oh man your lips bleeding you okay and it's like every cop at least that i ever worked with would be like uh we're doing a, a dui investigation now because uh what's what's going on here that's your car were you driving it yes you crashed into a tree yes your lips bleeding yes you admitted you were at martinis drinking yes <laughs> but uh anyways that's sorry to detract a little bit from from the theme but i couldn't help myself Zuzu's pedals. Zuzu. There they are! Bert! What do you know about that? Merry Christmas! Well, Merry Christmas. Merry! Of course, we get a little ad. Sorry about that again. We're going to skip it. Bring this back up. Jail. Go on home. They're waiting for you. 
bank examiner? Mr. Bailey, there's a deficit. I know, $8,000. George, I've got a little paper. I'll bet it's a warrant for my arrest. Isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. Merry Christmas. Reporters are... Where's Mary? Mary! Oh, look at this wonderful old drafty house. Mary! 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 Have you seen my wife? Mary! Eat you up. <laughs> Where's your mother? She went looking for you with Uncle she... Billy. Daddy! Zuzu, Zuzu, my little ginger snap. How do you feel? Fine. Not a smidge of temperature. Not a smidge of temperature. <laughs> uh, hallelujah. Hello. George. George, darling. Where? George, darling. Where are you? Oh, George. Oh, George. 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 Are you real? <laughs> Oh, George. George. You have no idea what's happened to me. You have no idea what happened. I just let that play a little bit in the background as I talk, but the biggest uh, difference for me is we see the George we came to know early on in the film where he's just this happy kid, this happy guy, and it took, it just took a little bit of redirection for him to realize how good his life was. And I think we've all been there. I think why this has stood out to me so much uh, in this recent viewing uh, that I mentioned, you know, when, when I was in North Dakota is because of the way my life and my family's life has gone. Certainly not to plan. Well, it's certainly not to our plan at least. And to face down the tyrant in our life, you know, if you're watching this or listening to this, you, pr you probably know it is uh, be, the FBI, because I, I whistleblowed to Congress uh, about a number of issues. Um, so as I watched through this recently, I just kind of was watching it through that new filter or that new frame, and it it helped even my you know my mindset and rationale to just look at things a little bit differently. Like I still have my family, I still have my kids, I still have my wife, and friends and family and new friends and people I've encountered throughout this. And we see here, you know, right here, George, big smile on his face, all these people from the town coming forward to help him in his time of need. That's been similar for us, all sorts of people, most of whom are strangers have stepped forward to, to help us because they see what we've done and what we're going through and, and, you know, have decided to help and, I don't know. It's just a reflective time of year for me anyways. I, I typically am like that. But uh, to to watch this movie that has been, I mean, honestly, it's been my favorite Christmas movie since, man, probably since I was a little kid. But I'll, I'll turn this volume back up a little bit. up to $25,000, stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright. Oh. so we see really the whole town come together to help George in his time of need, many of whom uh, have been helped by him in their times of need. 
uh, I, I know I didn't play it, but there was a scene where there was basically a run on the banks and people were coming to the building and loan try and, and get the money out. And uh, George and Mary and the business basically gave up all the money they had to, to, to continue to help these people so they, they could have money in their pocket. But it just is, for me, the most intriguing part, I guess, it, as an adult now, or at least going through what we have recently, is to see the change in George and for him to realize that the life you have is a life worth living. And I know, um, especially with my time as a cop, that this time of year is difficult for a lot of people. And a lot of people do contemplate suicide, and some people go through with it. And if, you, if you've happened upon this and are listening or are having a difficult season of your own, I pray that you will remember that your life touches many other lives. We don't get the opportunity that George had in this in this vicious film, you know, to take a look at what life would be like uh, if we never lived. But it's you know this part in the movie it just is it's it's reassuring you know like george he's smiling again he's happy got his family the townspeople have surrounded him you know we don't always get a happy ending too uh this is a hollywood film it's important to remember that but we don't always get that happy ending. but um even if you don't like doing the right thing is still what we must do even if it doesn't end happily I think of, of all sorts of examples throughout history of coming to mind right now is the Scottish Covenanters. Uh, they refused to bend the knee to the king, and the, you know, the, the king is not above Christ. And so uh, many of them were executed for that. But they did the right thing regardless. And, you know, I think it's similar to what we see with George here and this film. And you know, we can look to countless examples throughout history or you know maybe you know of some personally in your life that you can point to and it truly is a wonderful life and i hope that the more of you who follow along and and see what me and kyle seraphin and steve friend uh, talk about and have to say that it's a wonderful life and it's a suspendable life it has to be uh, we have to stare down the tyrants in our lives uh, to have that wonderful life and, you know, it may not always be wonderful in the eyes of man, but it certainly is wonderful in the eyes of God if we adhere to the truth and stand for, for what is right. And I guess at this Christmas season, you know, I'm, I'm going to share one more, one more passage. I know I started with that one in Isaiah that truly is a, a well-known Christmas verse, but uh, here's another section, uh, not really attributed to Christmas very often, but it comes in 2 Corinthians 4. And this really stood out in my mind as I recently watched It's a Wonderful Life too. And in chapter 4, verse 7, it says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed always carrying in the body 
the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And I think especially at this Christmas season, it's important to point to Christ and how our life is in him. Uh, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote Second Corinthians, and he also wrote elsewhere that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And at this Christmas season, I think it's it's another poignant example of what our life should be. Our life should be to live for Christ and to live fully for Him, and not to even contemplate what George, what George was doing on the bridge to jump in and end it, because he thought that would be best but to let it run its course and the path that we're on, we must know that it's a divine path. It's a holy path. And even when the going gets tough, and sometimes it's really hard to wrap our brains around why certain things happen or how they could happen or how it could be good or how it could be from God. But these things are sovereign and divine. And, you know, it, in that last verse I read, verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Every day that ticks by, we are getting closer to death. And that doesn't need to be something we're fearful of. It can be something that we not necessarily look forward to, but if we can recognize that we're living for Christ, that our life truly does have a powerful meaning. And I think especially at Christmas time, it's often lost that, you know, what our life is supposed to be or even what the meaning of this season is. You know, we've had a number of Christmas celebrations ourselves. And, you know, I, I've said that it's funny how Christmas has the effect of pointing away from Christ. And in large part, that's only if we allow it. But we're so busy. We're so active. We have all these things to do. We have, you know, the the cookie uh, trade to bring or the meal to make or the gifts to wrap or buy or whatever that we we forget the whole point and the whole point is is for Christ and that really should be the whole whole point of our of our lives and I played that clip of George praying in the bar before he decided to to go jump off the bridge and he says you know I don't typically pray but help me and George didn't know it, but in many ways, the way he lived his life by doing, you know, putting himself last, that's that servant leadership. That's that Christ-like leadership that we all should aspire to. And I think in closing that that's, you know, one of the best aspects of this season is, is even looking how Christ came into the world in a manger, in a stable, and, you know, transient he wasn't at home because all the people at the time were were called to a census, so they had to travel back to Bethlehem, which is where Joseph was from. Then the wise men came and visited, and and then Joseph was visited by an angel in the in a dream and said, "Hey, the government is coming for him." You know, I hearken back to that Isaiah nine six I read in the beginning. It says the government will be on his shoulders, and they were literally from from the time of his birth until the time of his crucifixion it was the government who who did those things and so they fled to Egypt because king herod came 
to Bethlehem and the surrounding area and killed all the infant boys. And it, it's this this picture of Christ that you know his whole life, uh, Satan, the the enemy, was was on the prowl trying to devour him. And that's what Satan does to us as well. He wants to devour us, and that's why we even more more so have to point to Christ. But uh, you know this this is a little different. You know, basically doing a, a movie review. So let me know what you think in the comments or DMs on Twitter or whatever. You can you know follow along at GOB Actual pretty much everywhere. I'm going to post this up on a few different places, but. Um, let me know what you think and what your thoughts are on on the movie and uh, this this type of format. But it was something that was just kind of wearing on me. So I hope I hope you found it worthwhile. And until next time, hold the line. We can get this guy to be quiet. We can get everybody to be quiet. They want to send a message, don't they? Absolutely. They want to make you an example, don't they? Yes. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand before me in the breach before the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. As you can see behind me, there are three of my daughters. The fourth is in front of me, sitting in the stroller. When the day he arrives, we're going to suspend him. What is a suspendable? In weaponized fashion, the FBI allowed me to accept orders to a new position halfway across the country. Then, on my first day on the new assignment, they suspended me, rendering my family homeless. They suspended you, they took your pay, they don't let you get health insurance, they made life miserable for you. It is the man or woman who will stand in the breach. It is the man or woman who will do what is right, no matter what. It is the man or woman who will bear any burden and pay any cost for the truth. The FBI will crush you. This government will crush you and your family if you try to expose the truth about things that they are doing that are wrong. We are all examples of that. The government may breathe down your throat. We're not going to let his family get their belongings. We're not going to let him get his clothes for his kids, his winter coats for his children. We're going to send a message. And they did. They may chop off your head, but you will do what is right no matter what. For me, it's for them. They are living in a world that is far worse than the one I grew up in. What does it mean to you to be a suspendable?